We have come in our series to the end of the book of Exodus. And today we're covering the last six chapters. So we should be done by about two o'clock. Hope that works for everybody. Um, as you can probably tell if you looked at it this week, just reading through chapters 35 through 40 would probably take about all of the time that we have here together this morning. So what I plan to do is make a few summarizing comments about chapters 35 to 39, and then we will spend most of our time looking at chapter 40, which is really the climax of the book of Exodus. And so um, if you'd like to turn there, um, you can find that on page 80 in a pew Bible. The text, which we'll be getting to in a moment, is also printed in the bulletin on pages 8 through 10. Before we look at these things together and consider them, let's pray and ask our Lord's help as we consider his word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you that even as we gather together and read the end of a book of the Bible that we have been studying together for some time, we're reminded of your goodness. We're reminded of how your word has continued to come to us week after week. We're reminded of your continuing presence and sustaining grace. And we ask for your help this morning. We pray that your spirit would help us as we consider your word, that you'd illumine our hearts to see the beauty of the salvation that you have given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you meet us where we are in the midst of our worries, our concerns, our weaknesses, our pride, our sin, and our struggles we pray that you would give us exactly what we need to hear this morning. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we consider uh, chapters 35 through 39, I just want to make a few comments uh, about those. Those chapters give a detailed account of the construction of the tabernacle. And much of it, you'll notice, is almost word-for-word -word repetition of what came before in the instructions that Moses was given on the mountain in chapters 25 to 31. In fact, if you've lost your place in Exodus, you could think, um, am I just reading the same thing over again, except the verb tenses have changed and there are a few tweaks to it. And so we can be tempted sometimes, I know I feel this way many times, as we read our Bibles, we can think, okay, I'll just skip over this. I've already heard this before. But I think some of the reason for that temptation is that we fail to understand and appreciate why these things are being repeated. Uh, if we consider the context of the people of God as they're hearing these things and as they're hearing these things repeated almost verbatim, there are several reasons why the Lord has taken the time to hear these things again. And I just want to mention three of them briefly so we can appreciate what's going on in these sections. The first is that repetition shows the importance of the tabernacle. The repetition there shows the importance of what God is doing in the tabernacle. Scroll space is very valuable <laughs> to the ancient peoples, and our attention spans are limited like their attention spans were, although I think evidence shows they could probably track a little bit longer than most of us do. Um, but copying these things is 
takes a lot of work. And so the amount of space that the tabernacle occupies in the Old Testament is a way of signaling this is something important. God is doing something important here. And so the repetition shows the importance of the tabernacle. Secondly, the repetition was a way of giving the people a tour of the tabernacle. Do you realize that for nearly all of the original hearers, and for all of us, as far as I know, they never got a chance to look inside and to see these things that were there in the tabernacle. Maybe they would get glimpses of them as the tabernacle was being transported, but they wouldn't see how it's arranged and know the experience of walking among the Lord's presence in that way. And so through these repeated descriptions, these thorough descriptions, they can envision what God's dwelling place looks like so they can better understand what he's seeking to communicate to them. So it's a way of giving a tour of the tabernacle. And then finally, it's important to understand in the development of Exodus that this repetition plays a very key function in showing, that, in showing the people's obedience. It shows both Moses' obedience and the people's obedience. If you remember in the story, this whole tabernacle endeavor nearly didn't happen. It's only because of God's grace. It's only because of Moses' intercession that this plan is even back on. And so as you read through this repetition of these sections, one of the things you'll notice is that 25 times it says, as the Lord commanded Moses. So also it happened. And it's explaining that and highlighting that Moses and the people this time around did exactly as the Lord had commanded. And now the tabernacle is actually happening. And that's very significant in the story. So those are some of the reasons for the repetition. And then as we think about chapters 35 to 39, I just want to draw out two themes that you may notice in the text as you read through it. One is that the construction of the tabernacle was a corporate event. The text really emphasizes that many people were involved in giving and in doing the work of building God's dwelling place. The text actually emphasizes specifically that both men and women were involved in various ways according to their various giftings and empowerments of bringing God's dwelling place together. And at the end of chapter 39... In verse 42, one of the ways we hear this highlighted is it says, so the people of Israel had done all the work. The people of Israel came together to do this great endeavor. And we get this beautiful glimpse of how all of the redeemed people were empowered by God himself to take on this project that he had given to them. And so it was a corporate event. And then secondly, one of the things that the text really highlights is that the people were eager to participate in the building of the tabernacle. They have to tell the people to stop bringing money, to stop bringing valuables because they had enough to build the entire thing. And as you read the text, especially there in chapter 35, it talks repeatedly about the people's hearts and it mentions their spirits. It says they gave and they worked out of a generous heart. Literally, it says their hearts were lifted up in this work as they were doing it. Their spirits were willing and moved to participate in what God had called them to do. 
why, in all this repetition, is the author of Scripture talking about the hearts of the people? Well, it's significant because this isn't the people's first building project, is it? Do you remember what their job had been? They had been slaves in Egypt who built things for Pharaoh by making bricks. And their lives were described earlier in the book as bearing these heavy burdens. And things were so bad for them in slavery in Egypt that when Moses came in chapter 6 and he's bringing the good news of God's deliverance, there's this fascinating verse that says that they didn't even listen to Moses. Why? Because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. That's where the people were enslaved under Pharaoh. But here we get a radically different picture. The Lord is not a king like Pharaoh who enslaves his people to burdensome labor, but instead we see his people excitingly, willingly, gratefully going about the work of building the tabernacle. Why? Because he's a God who has rescued his people. And now, especially in this story, he's a God who has freshly forgiven his people of breaking his covenant. And this inspires within them a heart that is excited about the things of God. And it gives us this wonderful picture of this grace-empowered work as God's people come together and he empowers them to go about building the place for him to dwell. And so those are a few things just to kind of keep in mind as you work through in your Bible reading times these long sections. These are some of the things that the author is trying to highlight for us and that God wants us to see. But with those in mind, we come to chapter 40, which is the climax, the conclusion of the book of Exodus, the completion of the tabernacle. And I'm going to read that. You can find it printed there in your bulletin on pages 8 and 9. I'll read verses 1 through 33 so we can hear it. And as we listen, the time has come. All the things have been built, and the time has come now where the Lord gives Moses instruction to put it all together and to assemble the tabernacle. And this is an amazing thing. So hear God's word as we come to Exodus 40, starting there. In verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put it in the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. And you shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. And you shall anoint the altar of burnt offering and all of its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. 
You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father so that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table and on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and he offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, They washed as the Lord commanded Moses, and he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. So we hear in chapter 40 this wonderful assembling of the tabernacle all accord with what the Lord had commanded Moses. He gives the instructions in verses 1 through 15, 16 to 33, Moses faithfully does this. He sets up everything. And it says in verse 33, so Moses finished the work. And in that, we actually hear echoes of the Genesis account of God finishing his work of creation there in Genesis, kind of signaling this recreation presence that is now there among the people. And now, just under a year since they had come up out of Egypt, the tabernacle is completed and among them and ready for them to celebrate the first Passover. And then we come to the conclusion, this beautiful last paragraph of the book. And this is what we will focus on for the rest of the sermon. It's verses 34 through 38. You can find it in your bulletin on page 10. Now that everything has been set up, Here's what happens. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So as we think about Exodus 40 and the end of this book together, I want to point out um, two aspects of the significance of the tabernacle. The significance of the tabernacle that we see. It is the place of God's presence, and the tabernacle is also the way to God. And then after we look at those two points, the place of God's presence, the way to God, we'll consider together how Jesus fulfills these two aspects of the tabernacle and what that means for us. So first of all, let's consider how the text shows us that the tabernacle became the place of God's presence. As we have been working through the book of Exodus, one of the high points of the book up until this time has been how God drew near to the people at Sinai. It's the greatest development since the garden. In the garden, God was present among two people, but then they're driven out, and then his presence is kind of sporadic and individualized. But then in Exodus 19, God comes to Sinai, and the people gather to him, and it's something like never before. But now, what are they supposed to do? (laughs) They're supposed to leave Sinai. They're supposed to go on to the promised land. And how is God going to be among them as they go? Well, this passage goes out of its way to show us that God's mountain-dwelling presence at Sinai would come down to the tabernacle to be with them on their journey. And what the the text is really describing for us is that the tabernacle is really a portable Mount Sinai that has come to the people. Um, As we talk about these things, you'll notice a diagram in your bulletin on page 11. And just in case you can't visualize all that's going on in the tabernacle, as I describe these things, that picture can be helpful to, to reference. But let's think for a moment about Mount Sinai and how that was structured and then how we see the tabernacle being structured. Do you remember at Mount Sinai, there were essentially three zones. First, there was the base of the mountain, right? And that is as close as the ordinary people could come to the mountain. And what was there at the base? An altar was there. You could come near to God only through sacrifice. Well, then as you look at the tabernacle design, you you see that so also most Israelites could enter that first part, the court of the tabernacle. And what is there as you enter into the presence of God? Right away, there's an altar, again, showing sacrifices for the people must be made to come near. But then as we think about Mount Sinai again, remember some people could go partway up the mountain. Moses and Joshua and the 70 elders who kind of function as prototypical priests in in the story after the covenant is made. They go partway up the mountain and there in Exodus 24, what happens? They shared a meal in God's presence and they saw the brilliance of a, a manifestation of God himself among them. 
Well, so also in the tabernacle, some, the priests, would be able to enter that second level, that holy place. And there in the holy place, there was a table with the showbread signifying a meal in the presence of God. And there was the lampstand, the symbol of God's life-giving presence and light among his people. Then if we think back about Mount Sinai, there's a third section, isn't there? There's the top of the mountain. And to the top of the mountain, only Moses, the mediator of the people, could go when he was called up into that cloud. And so also, in the tabernacle, only one could go into that most holy place, the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And so what we see through the way the tabernacle is arranged is God is conveying to his people that his Sinai presence has come down to be among them. The tabernacle is Mount Sinai, in a sense, on its side so that he can travel with them. And the text also highlights two main aspects that are associated with God's presence at the top of that mountain that are now found in the tabernacle. And those two aspects are the Lord's glory and the Lord's voice. The presence of the Lord's glory is something that we saw on Mount Sinai. Exodus 19 speaks of God's presence that settles, that dwells on the mountain. And and how is it depicted? It's in the form of a cloud. And it's a fiery cloud, right? From within there is fire and during the day the cloud shields people from the fire. At night you can see the glow of the fire coming from it. it. It both revealed and concealed the presence of God as he dwelt upon the top of Mount Sinai. But what do we find there in the entrance to the most holy place, the top of the mountain in the tabernacle? In front of the veil that's there, there's an altar of incense. And on that altar of incense, what do we find? Fire and smoke. Fire and smoke that's shielding, in a sense, from that holy presence of the mountaintop of the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And even when the high priest would go into that Holy of Holies one day a year, do you know what he had to take with him? one of the things that he had to take with him was the burning incense. He had to take with him fire and cloud into the presence of God. And Leviticus 16 tells us why. It says that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. As the high priest goes into God's very holy presence, there's cloud and fire there to shield him from God's presence over the ark. And so when we come to Exodus 40, the text wants us to see that here, when the tabernacle is completed, God's place of residency moves from Mount Sinai now to the tabernacle. Exodus 24 says, the cloud covered the mountain, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. But Exodus 40 says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Lord took up his mountain glory residence in the tabernacle 
among the people. His holy presence was now found there. But there's another aspect of his presence that draws near in the tabernacle. We find that one of the things that's significant at the top of Mount Sinai is the voice of God. The voice of God. And so in the tabernacle, we now come to see the presence of the Lord's voice. In chapter 19, God called to Moses out of or from the mountain. And then remember, the Lord speaks to the people from the mountain. And what happens? They're so terrified, they can't bear it. And they ask Moses to then speak instead. So Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law. He comes down. He goes back up on the mountain. God tells him how to build the tabernacle. He comes down, up and down to God's voice. And from God's voice, Moses comes and goes. But now, the tabernacle is the place for God's voice to dwell. In the most holy place, in the holy of holies, what is the central piece of furniture? It's the Ark of the Covenant, right? And what is contained within the Ark of the Covenant? The tablets of testimony, the two stone tablets that come from God himself, the ten words written down dwell there in the Holy of Holies. God's written word is now dwelling there among his people. And back when the Lord gave Moses the instructions for the tabernacle, the Lord told Moses that he would continue to speak, but that it would be from the ark. Back in Exodus 25, verse 21, listen to what God says about how he will speak in the tabernacle. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you, those stone tablets. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. You see, now in the tabernacle, the Lord's voice will come from above the mercy seat, from above the Ark of the Covenant. And at the end of our passage, we find that Moses is outside the tent, isn't he? because the glory comes and he can't go in. We'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment. But he's outside the tent at the end of Exodus. Leviticus goes on to continue the story. And what we find out that happens there in Leviticus 1.1, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. God's voice resounds among his people from the tabernacle. No more going up and down the mountain for God's instruction. No more going outside the camp to the tent of meeting. God's voice, God's word was now present among his people. So when we come to the end of Exodus, God's presence has come down from Sinai. And the two main aspects of his presence on the mountain, his glory and his voice, are no longer up on Sinai but now down and present among the people. The tabernacle has become the place of God's presence. But secondly, we must see that the tabernacle was also the way to God. The tabernacle was the place of God's presence, but the tabernacle was also the way to God. 
You may notice throughout the descriptions of the tabernacle that two terms seem to be used pretty much synonymously. The term tabernacle and also that term tent of meeting. And they both reflect kind of different aspects of what would take place there at the tabernacle. Tabernacle reflects God's dwelling. It comes from the term to dwell. And it really speaks of God's tent being with the people as he dwells with them. But with that name for the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, it emphasizes God coming near and meeting with the people, the way to actually meet with God himself. And the tabernacle was the embodiment of the way to meet with God. As you entered and progressed through the tabernacle, you were taught how you meet with God. As you moved from east to west, you were ushered back into Eden, as Nate explained so beautifully with his description of what's going on in the tabernacle. The the inner design of the tabernacle was a reflection of God's garden presence. And the way to God's presence, the tabernacle taught, was through sacrifice at the altar through purification at the basin, through mediation of the priests who would go between sinful people and a holy God. You see, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, shows the way for sinful people to meet with a holy God. And on the one hand, the tabernacle shows this amazing imminence or nearness, doesn't it? Everyone can look and they can see the Lord's presence over the tabernacle in the cloud. God is dwelling with his people now closer than any time since the garden. And yet, because of sin and because he's a holy God dwelling among sinful people, the tabernacle also shows great distance, doesn't it? There are differing levels of experience of the presence of God, gradations of holiness and being able to draw near. That's shown in the structure of the rooms, but it's even shown in the materials used to build those rooms as you go from bronze to silver to gold as you enter closer into God's presence. And the book of Leviticus will explain that through proper purification, through proper sacrifice, You can come into the court as an Israelite and God can continue to dwell among you. But because of the limitations of the sacrifices, because of the limitations of the mediators, that access is also very limited. Only the priests get to go into the holy place. And only the high priest, one day a year, gets to set foot in the most holy place of God's presence there. And so in this way, as the tabernacle shows the way to God, the tabernacle also highlights the dilemma of the way to God. Ever since the fall, there has been this relentless question, how can a holy God dwell with sinful people? And Exodus ends with a vivid visual representation of this. Moses, the one who all throughout the book enjoyed the most intimate fellowship with God, the closest access to him, where is he at the end of the book? 
He's outside the tent of meeting. Even he can't enter because of God's presence and God's glory within the tabernacle itself. Now, we may read this and we might think, well, that's just a logistical problem, right? Like if a thick cloud comes into a tent and you don't have night vision, that could be tricky. You might trip over some things. So Moses just has to stay out for a while. This isn't a logistical problem. This is a holiness problem. Moses is outside the tent because God's presence is so intense as he comes to the tabernacle that Moses knows he cannot draw any closer at this point. And so it shows us this dilemma of this holy God dwelling with the sinful people. But the end of the book also shows that the tabernacle is still awaiting arrival, isn't it? There's this dilemma, how can we go any closer? But then also, the tabernacle's complete, and, and that's great as far as it goes. But the tabernacle itself is designed to be portable. Why is it designed to be portable? Because they're not yet in the land. They still have to journey. God's people are still a journeying people. And so the structure that God has built for him is a journeying structure. It's a tent so he can dwell with his tenting people as they're not yet in the land. And see, we end the book by realizing that the tabernacle was not the be-all, end-all of God's presence among his people. Even when they get into the land and the temple is built, it's not the final plan, is it? The goal has always been Eden expanding to the whole world, all creation as God's holy temple, God's glory filling the earth as the waters cover the sea and the new heavens and the new earth. And so the book ends with a dilemma. Moses is outside and the people have not yet arrived in the land. And while that may be the end of the book, it's not the end of the Bible. And that's really good news for us, isn't it? Because Exodus moves the story forward, but what it does more than anything else is it points forward to what God would do in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, all that the tabernacle was pointing to, Jesus fulfills. He is God's presence among us, and he is the way to God. And I want to spend a little bit of time unpacking those things for us so we can see the beauty of this salvation that we have. First, Jesus brings God's presence in the incarnation. Jesus brings God's presence to us in the incarnation. When the eternal Son descended in the incarnation and took to himself a human nature, God was now present among humanity like never before. John tells us in his prologue, the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled, tented among us. And what came in Jesus? We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You see, what's happening when Jesus comes in assuming a human nature and coming to earth to dwell and to tabernacle among humanity is it's the climax of the old covenant presence of God 
God was now here on earth in the person of the Lord Jesus, in the flesh. And he's not in the Holy of Holies, but he's tabernacling among the people. And in that way, Jesus is truly Emmanuel, God with us like never before. And as we see Jesus bringing God's presence in the incarnation, what Exodus has taught us to see is this relentless heart of God in pursuing after dwelling with his people. When we see the tabernacle, this tent, there among amidst this group of sinful people, when we see our Lord Jesus lying in the manger as a baby, living with others, talking with men and women and children, when we see him dying on a cross, we are to see God relentlessly pursuing being present among people like you and me. And we've talked about this over and over again, but part of the reason we talk about it over and over again is because that's what Scripture does, that God relentlessly desires to be present among his creatures, among his people. He was present in the garden, He was present in the burning bush. He came down to the mountain. He came down to a tent. He came down to the temple. Finally, he came down in the flesh and down to the cross. This is how far God will go to come down to us because he loves us and he desires to dwell with us. And let me phrase that a little bit differently. If you are looking to Christ this morning, then you can know for sure God loves you. He desires to dwell with you. And God's presence among us in Jesus' incarnation, the fact that he came that near in taking on human flesh, one of the things that that does in Scripture is it is the basis, it is the foundation of comfort and help for the people of God in their time of need. Life is hard. The curse is horrible. We are weak. We are tempted. We fall. We sin. But Jesus knows. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. Jesus knows what it's like to live in this context. And the author of the Hebrews goes on to say, because we have a high priest like this who knows so well, one who has come so close that he is actually one of us, then what is the response? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. God's heart in drawing near to us is the reason we can be confident to draw near to him for the help that we need this side of the curse. But do you realize Jesus' incarnation isn't even the climax of God's presence with us? It goes even further. He isn't just God's tabernacling presence brought near in the incarnation. He is the way to God. He fulfills what the tabernacle was. He is the way to God. Jesus brings us God's way, the way to God, through his death 
and resurrection. Jesus came as the true temple, he tells us. Not only the place of God's presence, but the way to God's presence. And he fulfilled all that the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices were pointing to about how we needed access with God. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus came and offered himself as the atoning sacrifice for our sin. That unlike the blood of bulls and goats, his death could actually atone and pay for and satisfy, take away the sins of his people because he lived a sinless life as one of us and because he is the son of God. And through his sacrificial death, Hebrews 10.20 says that the new and living way has been opened up for us through the curtain that is his flesh. The gospel tells us that, the gospels tell us that when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain, the veil that was separating mankind from that glory presence of God was torn in two from top to bottom. And Hebrews says, because that has been torn down by the sacrifice of Christ, we have confidence to enter now what? The holy places by the blood of Jesus. Jesus has become the way to God. He's opened up that way through his sacrificial death. But not only has he opened up the way by his death, but he has led the way by his resurrection and his ascension. All throughout Exodus, we have seen the problem that we looked at last week. When the Lord said to Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Fallen humanity in the presence of God doesn't work out. And part of that is a sin problem, but part of it goes deeper than that. Even the high priest on the Day of Atonement had to be shielded by a cloud that he would take in so he would not die. And yes, Jesus opened up the way, but that could be a very scary thing, right? What did he do about the problem of us being in God's presence? Well, Hebrews 9 tells us that the tabernacle, the earthly tabernacle, was actually patterned after the heavenly one. It was patterned after heaven itself. And it tells us that when Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin, he didn't do that in the earthly tent. He didn't come down off the cross and go over to the temple. But instead, he entered once for all into the holy places. Our Lord Jesus, who forever united himself to our humanity, has gone into the Holy of Holies and he's stayed there. And he made it possible not just for one human to step into God's presence one day a year for just a little bit of time, but by his righteous life and through the sufficiency of the sacrifice that he offered in himself, he has made the way for sinful humans like you and me to be raised up with him resurrected and glorified humanity that's fit to be in God's presence forever. 
That's why in our scripture reading this morning, did you notice that, that Jesus says that he will rebuild the temple in three days? That three days, we know, is a reference to his resurrection, right? It's not until after his body has been raised that the disciples come to understand what is taking place. Why? Because it wasn't until Jesus was raised in resurrection life as the first fruits of the new creation humanity that God's true templing would be able to take place with humanity. Our fallen humanity needed not only to be forgiven, it needed to be raised up to what it was intended to be, fit to dwell with God, fit to see his face through the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't just come down to bring God's presence to us. He also came to raise us up to God so that we could be with him forever in his Father's house. He's the true temple. He's the place where God and humanity meet and can remain together forever. Can you hang with just a little bit more? That dwelling together, while much of that is a future thing, It has begun even now. It's not yet bodily, right? We know that. We groan. We ache. We're awaiting glorification. But Jesus has brought us into heaven's presence through our union with him, and he has sent heaven to us. Jesus told his disciples that it'd be better if he went away Because when he's gone, they can actually more fully experience his presence. How can that be? Because he would send his spirit to them, not merely to be with them, but to be in them. And at Pentecost, that mountain flame descends upon God's people, doesn't it? Not to consume them. But the God who is a consuming fire has come to dwell in them in the Holy Spirit. And in mystery upon mystery, what we find is that in the new covenant, the things that were outside in the old covenant are now brought inside through the new. Moses, we end the book with him outside the place where God dwelt. He couldn't go any nearer But by the Spirit of God, God has come inside us now to indwell us with his very glory presence, and we become his temple. We become temples of the living God. And in the Old Covenant, God's voice was outside of them, even as it came from the tabernacle. And the people heard it, but they couldn't keep it. But now, by the Spirit of truth, God's law has been brought inside us. It has been written on our hearts. And now the Holy Spirit himself is illumining our hearts to be able to hear God's voice and to hear Christ and to believe and to obey. He's enabling us now to have lives that are living sacrifices to the living God. That which was outside in the old has been brought inside in the new because Jesus has sent the Spirit to us. By the Spirit, we've been united to the risen Christ 
And now God is dwelling within us. As the book of Exodus ends, the people have an uncertain journey ahead of them. They don't fully know what lies ahead, but they know that it's good. And I think if I were to counsel the people of Israel as they walked through life's journeys, I think the counsel would be, look to the tabernacle. Look to what it tells you about the living God. You have been rescued. God has made a covenant with you. God has promised to be with you. And God will bring you to dwell in the promised land. Well, if that's what the tabernacle signified to them, how much more for us on our earthly pilgrimage are we to look to our Lord Jesus, to know and see that we have been rescued from all that has enslaved us. We have been forgiven completely for all of our sin. We are now in an unbreakable covenant with God himself. And we are not alone, but indwelt by the living God. And that triune God who has loved us enough to do all that, to come near to us and to save us, he will bring us to dwell with him fully forever one day. And Jesus assures us, as surely as he has been raised, that we too will be raised with him to experience that glory forever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess how little we grasp and understand of the depth of your love to us, of the beauty of your plan of salvation, of how thoroughly you have come to us in the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit. And we also confess how little sometimes we long for the day when we will dwell with you fully. But we pray that you would forgive us for these things and that you would strengthen us for that journey and that you would help us to behold more and more the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory that he has brought to us, and that you will change us more and more to be like him until we experience the fullness of all these things when he comes for us again. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.